Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, Lou, um, and hello, everybody. Um, if there is anyone here who doesn't know me, then as I have already been introduced, my name is Jackie, and together with Tim, I lead the service here in Stockwell. Um, I realise I don't ever say anything else about what uh, the rest of my life. So I am obviously mum to our two girls, to Olivia and Ariana, and then I also work in local government supporting vulnerable children and families. So that is a, a really short version. I won't go into any other details, but that is... Um, that is me, and this is as new for me as it is for you today. So I'm really pleased to be here. I'm really pleased to be speaking to us and continuing our series on Jonah. So for those of you who don't know, we started a mini-series last week. Um, we took the whole of July to look at a short book, Ruth, and we're taking August to go through Jonah. And yeah, Adam was amazing last week. It was really, really, really good start. And um, yeah, the kind of the questions that he left us with particularly just really stayed with me through the week. So I'm, it's a privilege for me to be able to kind of continue in that series. For those of you who weren't here, we saw in Jonah 1 that God had asked Jonah, if you don't know the story, to go to Nineveh. Um, and that's modern day Mosul, I haven't got the map, or the other side of the river from Mosul. And instead of doing that, he headed to um, Joppa and boarded a boat for Tarshish, which is Malaga. Um, you can understand why he does that, but it does not <laughs> go well for him on the boat. Um, so I asked... I mean, I thought Jonah was like a super famous story, and I asked Olivia, our six-year-old, and what she knew about Jonah, and she said this. She said, Jonah was a man with a bad plan, and both of our girls have got into doing this, mostly at inappropriate times, but <laughs> they say they are in love, <laughs> but they do, they go, but Jonah was a man with a bad plan um, to run away from God and to not do what God had told him. Um, so given what we know happens on the boat and what we heard last week, I think bad plan is probably even a bit generous. Um, and last week, Adam covered Jonah running from God, getting on this boat. Um, he ends up sleeping through a storm. He's thrown into the sea um, by his sailing companions. And he left us last week with this famous man overboard cliffhanger where Jonah is swallowed by a big fish. Um, and that's where we arrive today. So I'm going to read the passage. Um, I'm going to actually read from the last verse of chapter one of Jonah and read through to the end of chapter two. It should come up on the screen behind me. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You held me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The current swelled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. 
And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So, <laughs> chapter two is about Jonah and finding out that God was there with him in the depths and then seeing God rescue him from those depths. This is an amazing story. And we have the account of Jonah's prayer sandwiched in between these two tiny verses, the last verse of chapter one and then the last verse of chapter two that are about God working through the fish. So God providing a fish to swallow Jonah firstly and secondly commanding the fish to vomit him onto dry land. And I don't know about you, but this is like the craziest, most unique and terrifying context for a prayer that I'm aware of. The chapter is also where the book of Jonah starts to look a little different to some of the other Old Testament prophets. We get a sense that it's less actually about the words that Jonah speaks to the Ninevites, but more about Jonah's life with God, Jonah as a prophet. If you've read the book from start to finish, um, and it's really short, so if you haven't, I'd recommend it. It's only a few pages. Um, you'll see that there's kind of almost tantrums and immaturity that's depicted in this story with humour and with satire. But we want to be careful that we don't laugh too much at Jonah and his foolishness. Because this story, is part of the point of it is to cause us to reflect on whether it exposes something in us. It should provoke questions for us, like the questions that Adam asked us last week. Where has God called you and what has God called you to do? So this morning I'm going to take us a bit through the context of this, the kind of where, when um, of Jonah's prayer, the why, uh, a bit at what he said, and then I want to look at what happens as a result of him crying out to God. Actually, before we do any of that, let's just deal with the fish um, and those two little verses that sandwich in what, the rest of this chapter. Um, and they mention the dag gadol in Hebrew or ketos in Greek. Um, and that just means great or large sea creature. Um, and that's obviously what this story is best known for. So some people think that this whole story is an allegory or a parable, kind of based on how implausible it seems. Um, my personal view is that there's no reason to think that it didn't happen. Um, we know that it fits within the wider narrative of the Old Testament. Um, Jonah is mentioned in the Book of Kings. We know that Nineveh as a city is recorded um, in the Old Testament as well. We also know that Nahum, the prophet, he went to Nineveh a couple of centuries after Jonah, again, to, pe um, to preach repentance. Um, we also, and there's only one account that I could find, but we also have um, a historian, Barossus, who um, writes, a, write about, writes about Assyrian history, and he mentions a prophet named Jonah who came out of the mouth of a fish to speak the word of God to him. More compellingly to me than any of that, though, is that Jesus makes reference to this story in his response to a question from the Pharisees in Matthew 12. We hear, read about it in the Gospels, and we will, I'll come back to that later. So for those of us who do accept that it happened, there's also the question of how it happened. And there's three views on this. Um, just really briefly, firstly, um, and I am not a marine biologist, but firstly, there is a view that at that point in history, there was a fish big enough with enough oxygen in its belly to survive or to sustain Jonah for the three days. So that's the first option. The second option um, is that it was a miracle that God sustained Jonah inside the fish for three days and nights. That seems possible if God provided the fish, that he may sustain Jonah inside the fish. Um, and the third option is that actually that this is a resurrection story. That actually Jonah died either in the water or he died in the fish, but that God brought him back to life and that by the time he was vomited out onto dry land, that lovely image, he was alive. Um, now, to be honest, I'm not completely sure which of those I think it is, um, and it doesn't matter too much to me, actually, because the Bible is full of stories of God intervening in miraculous ways. 
if you accept, I do, that God created everything, that he was able to raise Jesus from the dead, then sustaining Jonah in a fish, however he chose to do it, should not cause us too much trouble. I don't want us to get distracted by the fish for the rest of our time together, that's why I've mentioned it now. Um, And for me, how Jonah survived inside the fish is actually far less important than what is going on inside Jonah's heart whilst he's in there. So let's get back to the chapter and look together at what is going on as Jonah cries out to God. So the actual account of the prayer is sometimes referred to, and you might have this in your subheadings, as the cry of distress and the words of thanks. Um, Actually, as I've been through it, they seem a bit more mixed up than that. It's not as separated as that. So I'm going to jump around in the passage a bit and hopefully won't muddle us too further by doing that. So first question, where and when is Jonah praying this? Well, we've already seen in chapter one that Jonah is down. He is seriously down. He's gone down to Joppa. He's gone down into a boat. He's gone down below deck. And then he is thrown lower down into the sea. The text tells us that he is in the depths of the grave. And the word used here is Sheol, which is the generic Hebrew term for um, underworld, for realm of the dead, um, all of those awful images. That is the word that is used here. The description goes on in verse 6. We're told that he has sunk to the roots of the mountains, the roots of the mountains. He is literally at rock bottom. Now, those of you who know me will know that I don't watch too much TV or movies, um, but one of the series, maybe my favourite series of all time, is um, Blue Planet. Who doesn't love a bit of um, David Attenborough? So you may see, uh, you might... Yes, actually you can't see, but I guess that's the point. This is an image. (laughs) Um, This is an image from the bottom of the ocean. Um, And so, yeah, let's imagine this as we think of this story. It's no tropical scuba dive. The deep is perhaps the most hostile environment on Earth, at least to us. A world of crushing pressure, brutal cold, and utter darkness. The deeper you go, the more extreme conditions become. It's here that we learn that Jonah cried out to God for mercy. So I find it really interesting that we don't hear that Jonah cried out to God before this point. I mean, there's quite a lot that's gone wrong leading up to this point, isn't it? He's run away from God. Um, He doesn't pray in the storm um, that we know about. He doesn't even pray in the sea that we know about. On the boat, we learn that the sailors who don't even believe in Jonah's God are asking him to cry out to God to pray. But we're not told that he does at that point surely we can look back and think, oh, this is interesting timing. He would have realized that his bad plan of running away from God was unraveling and it landed him quite literally in deep water. There's so many puns you could use with this talk. That might be the last one. (laughs) Anyway, so now he's in the sea. Well, actually, he's inside a fish. And Jonah realizes how desperate he was. And he tells us that he is in distress. The more I've read this chapter, the more I think that it starts with this crazy understatement. And why I say that is because this word distress is the same word that is used for the pain of childbirth. Now, I've had two children, and I've heard many birth stories from my friends, some of them in this room, and I can't think of a single person who's ever referred to the birth of their child as being in distress. There may be loads of other words that we use, but that's certainly not one of them. And the picture does build from here, thankfully. We see that actually Jonah is seriously overwhelmed. He is at the end of himself. As I said, literally, he is at rock bottom. Across verses 2 to 6, we are told of currents, we're told of waves, we're told of breakers, and we are told of engulfing waters. They're threatening and surrounding him. 
We're even told that there is seaweed wrapped around his head. And do not confuse that with like some fancy spa treatment. It is seaweed wrapped around his head. It would have been dark, like that picture. It would have been claustrophobic. Frankly, the scene places Jonah, and again, I don't watch many movies, but in some kind of ultimate, like, deep blue, perfect storm, open water shark attack type movie, and things are going from bad to worse for Jonah. So this is a good point to remember that Jonah actually surrendered himself. He was the one who suggested to the sailors that they threw him into the sea. They tried to prevent it. They tried to throw the cargo overboard. They tried to, um, they tried to row... This is, this is not rowing. This is skiing. They were not skiing. Um, they, tr- they tried to row. Um, they tr- tried to row through it. Um, even, those who, who, uh, even those on the boat, they thought that the storm was a threat to their lives. But here we have Jonah who is um, thrown into the sea. He's overwhelmed at rock bottom. And again, this is where we learn he's crying out to God. What does he say? Well, before this, we get the impression that Jonah was silent before God and, and actually pretty silent before um, the sailors as well. We're not told why that he is silent, but I wonder if it's that he just he didn't know what to say. Maybe he was ashamed. Um, maybe he was hiding. Just like Adam and Eve, if you know the story in Genesis, they disobeyed God and they hid. They ran away. They did something God asked them not to do. Jonah didn't do something that God had asked him to do. And both of those things put a distance between us and God. They put a distance between humanity and God. But Jonah turns towards God in prayer from this place. Now, I don't know um, how or whether you pray or what your idea of prayer is, but this passage is super helpful in expanding our understanding of prayer. The words Jonah speaks before God are few, and it's got to be said they're actually not the most repentant, given what's happened. And at best, they've got this muddled sort of acknowledgement of God. But along with his few words, throughout the narrative that we've seen and the images that we get, we get a sense of what is going on in Jonah's heart. We see how he was feeling when he turned to God. And we don't know whether he spoke these words out loud or not. It might have been difficult underwater to do that. Um, but as we look to this passage to learn about prayer, we learn that whether the words were spoken out loud or not, whether they were decipherable or not to man. They were decipherable to God. They were heard by God. So we see Jonah addressing God. He says, you held me in, in verse 3. And, and we don't actually know if it was a, you held me in, like that, or it was a, oh, you held me in. Like Maybe he's realizing at this point that God is with him. It goes on in verse 4, and this is what makes me think maybe it is the second one, because he says, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will turn again towards your holy temple. And the passage, it begins to look like this combination of kind of prayer and processing and figuring out what's going on. And he considers his situation and cries out to God from that. I find that enormously encouraging when I read this chapter. And I think it teaches us that communication with God is not just about our words. It's definitely not about how well we craft our words. But it's about just being real and raw, reflecting, realizing where we're at, considering. And maybe speaking our previously unspoken heart's cry. So we're told that Jonah calls for help, he looks towards God, and we're told that he remembered his God as Lord. So it's clear from what we know about how the story unfolds that God heard Jonah's heart and his cry when we are at our lowest, when we've run away, when we've sunk, when we are overwhelmed in the depths, whether we can articulate in words or barely even cry out in our hearts. Jonah teaches us that we have a God who hears, a God who sees, a God who is ready to respond to us. 
And I think that our hearts cry, our considering, our processing, our letting our emotions surface is all part of what it means to cry out to God. So do we do that? Do we? Isn't it true that the majority of us, we, keep, we make our best days public, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, and we keep our worst days private, our darkest days? Here is Jonah's darkest day, and he is crying out to God. He's expressing himself to God. Do we do that? Even muddled as Jonah did, are we communicating our need of God? I really want to encourage us to do that, to be raw and real and in the moment with God. So that's a bit of where and when and some of what he said. Why does Jonah cry out? Well, we know that he is in the depths, and, and I guess he would have had some kind of survival instinct. Um, but I think there's more to it than that as well. I think at his core, Jonah belonged to God, and he had a hope that God would show him mercy. So we are, we are all in over our heads, all of us. Jonah knew that he was drowning, and he called out to God. There's something in Jonah that hoped for, that pursued, that was so bold as to ask for God to show him mercy and compassion. And Jonah didn't actually do anything but cry out to God. He couldn't have done. He was in a fish. Um, and this is, super, this is really interesting to me because Jonah was an Israelite. He was one of God's people. And at that time, the way that you got right with God was by going to the temple. He couldn't have done that. By making a blood sacrifice, by killing an animal. Well, he couldn't have done that either. All that he does is cry out to God. All that he does is call out to God. He just prayed and trusted in the mercy of God. Doesn't God's response to Jonah here begin to point ahead to Jesus? Doesn't God's response to Jonah begin to point ahead to how we can come to God? And the message of Jonah becomes not clean yourself up, turn around, sort yourself out, and then come to God. It's just come from the depths, come to God. I really want us to be a people who learn to do that together. And whether you in this room are sat here overwhelmed today in the depths, whether it's anxiety or fear, whether it's heartache or disappointment, whatever it is, my prayer is that we would be a people who cry out to God. I want to say something else for us as a community here today as well. Tim and I have spoken about this a number of times in our vision talks and on a Sunday, but we want this space, we want these relationships, this service, our church, to be a place where we are able to speak truth, where we are able to be honest, where we can not just cry out to God, but we can also cry out to one another. Let us be people who are brave enough to let others know when we are in trouble to share our darkest days and not just our best ones. And also let us be those who look out for one another so that if one of us is sinking, if one of us, for whatever reason, keeps our trouble hidden, then that person does not go under. Now, because I work with children and families, um, I get a lot of emails around about this time about child safety um, and popping up on my Instagram feed as well. I don't know if any of you parents here have seen anything that looks a bit like this leaflet. This is actually an American one that I've seen, but it's, it, they're pretty scary. They are informative, but also scary. Um, and the point of this really is to say that um, we've got the wrong idea of what drowning is. Drowning does not actually look like drowning. It's almost always a deceptively quiet event. 
Now, TV movies do not prepare us for that, do they? I mean, I grew up with Baywatch, the original version. This is high drama. There are people running across the beaches. They are thrashing their arms. There is noise. It's really loud. And everyone can see what's happening. Drowning rarely ever looks like that. Those at real risk of drowning are actually quite still. They're still in the water. They appear distant. Their eyes glaze over. They're unable to move their limbs. As their heads bob up and down, they don't have enough breath, both to exhale, to inhale, and to cry for help. So they do what is most natural, and they inhale. And that's how their lungs fill up with water. Let us not be a community where people's lungs fill with water. Let us not be a community where those who are overwhelmed are out of sight and go under. So things do turn around for Jonah from this point. Moving on through his prayer from verse 6, we see, um, we see this. And I'm not going to read it again, but you can see it behind me. The first thing that you might notice is that the tense changes here. So in the first half, we've had a lot of present tense of where Jonah is, um, and then uh, past tense, sorry, and we move on to the present tense and future tense of where Jonah's going. So I think this is just a really neat way of kind of underlining the yet that I've already spoken to, um, and that's anticipating God, and also underlining this but God that we see in verse 6, which anticipates Jonah's restoration to new, new life. Jonah also, in the second half of the passage, he begins to speak words of thanks and he begins to speak words of truth about kind of what God has done and what he's still to do. He anticipates even his future praise of and his future obedience to God. Now, um, Jonah probably didn't pray for a fish uh, and being in the belly of a fish, to me, uh, I imagine to him as well, hardly seems like an answer to his prayer, like a rescue. He would have wanted to be on dry land. Of course he would have done. But I wonder if we can learn from Jonah not to disregard the fish. That might sound strange, but the fish was God's partial work in Jonah's life. It was a mystery, but it preceded the full miracle of him um, being back on dry land. The Bible shows us that there are loads of stories that um, have this kind of pivot point, this but or this yet, where God intervenes. And this is where we are at now in this story with Jonah, a turning point both in the story but also in Jonah's heart. So, what is happening here? What's been going on as a result of Jonah crying out to God? Well, firstly, there's three things. Um, I've learned that from listening to all the preachers. There's three things. Firstly, um, the distance between God and Jonah closes. And let's be clear, this is not a distance that God has put there. This is a distance that Jonah has put there. Up until this point, Jonah has been going away from God. He's been sinking. But now his prayer rises, his voice rises. He speaks of thankfulness, he speaks of future sacrifice and obedience. And we learn here that prayer is not primarily for God, though he loves it when we pray. Instead, prayer is something that we need, it benefits us. It closes the distance between us and God that we have put there, and it changes our heart. Speaking out truth and thanks to God also changes our heart. And I don't know if you, at times where you have found yourself overwhelmed, have seen the benefit of speaking out truth and speaking out thanks to God. It's definitely done that in my life, and we see that it's doing that in Jonah's life. Many of you will know that Tim and I are in this... Uh, 
super long season of um, moving, and it's really long. It, it doesn't even feel like we're in a season of moving, but it, it, we are. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, Tim and I felt God speak to us over two years ago now about um, buying a bigger home um, to raise our family, to build the church, to have other people in and out of, our neighbours, the girls' friends from school, you guys. And yes, that feels like a long time ago. Last September, we were about to complete on the sale of our flat. um, And we felt like that was it. The selling our flat was an important part part in our faith journey in moving. Um, But we didn't have anywhere to move to. Um, we weren't yet able to buy, we're not yet able to buy, um, and we hadn't, also hadn't found a home that we thought would be right for us. Tim was away in Rwanda, um, and we didn't have anywhere to go. So um, some of you guys actually, which was amazing, offered your homes to us. Some of you actually offered to move out. I don't know where you would have gone so that we could move in. Um, but that, that's, I mean, along with that incredible generosity, which really, really um, was meaningful to me, uh, we were just... Well, I guess what remains for me, partly from that season, is just um, the incredible legacy of prayer in that season in my life. And this is a long journey. We had been praying, we had been fasting for our next home and trusting God for what was to come. But in that time of near homelessness, we certainly ramped it up. Um, We prayed and we fasted and we trusted God more than we have for years And though it didn't mean that we were able to go straight to our house, God provided an incredible home for us to borrow. Firstly, thank you, Sam and Carola, and then to rent, um, which is the home that we're still in now, and we absolutely love being there. So I guess I consider our current home to be our partial work of God, much better than a fish. I'd much rather live there than a fish, but it's our partial work of God. And I continue to believe God for what is to come because of that season. My heart was fueled by prayer. It was changed by prayer. And through prayer, it was oriented towards, God, towards what God had already done and what he was going to do. I totally believe that God will complete what he has started in us. And that's just a small example. So, let me just have a drink. So the distance between God and Jonah closes. Um, that's the first thing he puts to put, begins to put um, his trust in God again. The second thing is that Jonah remembers who he is. So before this point in the story, we know that Jonah's struggling with his sense of identity. Um, Jonah's job was a prophet, and a prophet's job is to get a message from God and deliver that message to the people that God has told him to go and deliver it to, um, the Ninevites in this case. Instead, he ends up alone with a fish for company, or, yeah, inside the fish. So he has so clearly run away from who he is and from what God has called him to, those questions that Adam was asking us last week. We actually see Jonah struggle with his identity throughout the story. It doesn't stop here. Um, There's more to come with Liam and Trevor in the weeks to come. When he was still on the boat, actually, the sailors asked him, they said, who are you? What have you done? Why are you sleeping? And we see even in those questions, he's having to face head on his own identity. But as he prays, we see him remember who he is. He remembers God as his Lord. He also remembers his call and purpose. He see, he, we read, um, what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, okay, God, I'll do what you've asked me to do. I will go, I will declare that salvation comes from the Lord, not just in my life, but to the Ninevites. He's submitting himself to God, he's surrendering himself to God and reorienting himself towards God's purposes for him. 
So the distance closes, he begins to remember who he is, and finally Jonah is being rescued, which I guess is the big story in this story of this chapter. At the end of the chapter, we see Jonah back on dry land, but before he sets foot on land, we see him being rescued, not just from the sea, but also from his idols. So we go to verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from or forfeit the love. Some translations have it as the grace or steadfast love that is theirs. Do you know what love this is, what word this is? This is hesed. This is the same word that we learnt about in Ruth. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the steadfast love of God, the loyal, loving, kindness kind of love. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the hesed that could be theirs. Now, it's easy to identify other people's idols, isn't it? We can look at this story and we can imagine what Jonah's idols might have been. Um, his religious identity, his cultural identity, his status as a prophet, his pride, maybe his need for control, and the list goes on, his fear of man. It's really easy to identify other people's. This is a good pause, isn't it? A good point to pause and reflect. Who or what are your idols? My idols. What are we clinging to that mean that our hands, that mean that our heart is not open to receive the love of God? Who or what are we crying out to if it's not God? What are we relying upon? It might be our status, it might be our wealth, it might be our relationships, it could be our achievements so far in life, or even our plans, grand plans for our, the future of our life. The story of Jonah is an encouragement to let those things go. They're not going to save you. There's every chance that they're going to land you in deep water in a storm. Jonah contributed nothing to his salvation, and we contribute nothing to ours. Not our good decisions, not our upbringing, not our background, not who others say we are or who others think we are. Those two things have power. Not our achievements, not our moral life, or even our good deeds. All we can do is to call out to God, is to cry out to God. The message of Jonah is that salvation belongs to God. So we get to the end of Jonah chapter 2. But as I've already mentioned, we hear again of Jonah versus fish in the New Testament. In Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. And Jesus uses the story of Jonah as an analogy for his own death and resurrection. I'm just going to read the verses from Matthew. It's chapter 12 verse 40. As Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And then it finishes, one greater than Jonah is here. What are we to conclude from that? What is he talking about? Well, Jonah was muddled, he was overwhelmed. We've learned today he was slow to come to God, and even when he did, it's not what we might expect. But he is still rescued. But he is still brought back to life from the sea, and he's restored to life and purpose. But in Jesus, we have one much greater than Jonah. The Gospels, in fact, the story of the whole Bible is one that teaches us about Jesus. They teach us about Jesus as a man who also once fell asleep on a boat in a storm. But Jesus slept in peace, not in fear. And when he was woken by his sailing companions, he commanded the wind and waves to be still. And they were, because he was God. The Bible teaches us about Jesus as God in flesh, Emmanuel, God 
with us. He stepped into the distance between us and God, the distance that we had created through our own sin and by running away, by running away in the Garden of Eden, by running away to Tarshish, by running away ever since. It teaches us about Jesus who died, Jesus who went to Sheol, past the gates of death for three days and nights, and who was raised to life on the third day, having beaten sin, having beaten death, and proving himself to be our rescuer, the way that we can get back to God, however far we have run and however low we have sunk. Jonah had a word from God, but Jesus was the word of God. Jonah surrendered himself because of his own sin, Jesus surrendered himself because of our sin. Jonah was overwhelmed by the surrounding waves, but Jesus was overwhelmed by the separation that came from the cross. Jonah found himself on dry land after three days. He was back where he started with another chance to go to Nineveh. But Jesus, he rose from death after three days and his work was complete. It was finished. Everything had changed. Jonah needed rescuing, and so do we. Jesus was and is the rescuer. He's our rescuer if we cry out to him. Jesus came as the demonstration of this hesed love of God that we have been learning about in this season, and that feels like it's such a significant thing for us at the moment. Are we aware that there is a Hesed love that is ours, or that could be ours, if we would only stop clinging to our worthless idols? The prayer that we've looked at today, um, it comes in the middle of this story of Jonah being sent to the city, of Jonah going to Nineveh. And this week, it just provides a pause for us to catch up with what is going on internally, what's gone on in Jonah's heart, what's gone on in our hearts. Why don't we do the same now? If I could have the band back up, where is the band? <laughs> so let's think of Jonah and let's think of Jesus. What is it that you are clinging to? What is it that you rely upon? What is it that you are putting your trust in? If it is anything but the Hesed love of God and the salvation that is possible by Jesus' death and resurrection, then let me invite you to reconsider that today. Is what you're clinging to worth it? Is it worth more to you than your rescue? Is it worth more to you than the grace and life and freedom and love that can only come from being surrendered to God? What did Jonah do? He cried out to God. We have an opportunity to do the same today, to do the same right now. Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us as we go back into worship. God, we thank you for this story. We thank you of a, for a story of a man who ran away who sunk low, who was overwhelmed, a man who cried out to you and you responded with mercy and compassion and grace and love. Jesus, we thank you for what this story shows us about you 
about who you are and about what you came to do in being our rescuer. We invite you here right now, Jesus. We say we need you. We need you to rescue us. Would you come now by your Holy Spirit? We want to close any distance that is between us and you. We want to reorient our hearts towards you. Jesus, we love you. We are in awe of you. We thank you for who you are. Come and be with us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.